This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canivri. Thanks for joining us. When Mexico's President Andres Manuel López Obrador was elected with a wide majority in 2018, he promised to take a different approach to the war on drugs, including demilitarizing the anti-drug mission and legalizing some drugs like marijuana. He also said he would offer scholarships and increase educational opportunities to youth to keep them out of organized crime. While he has done some of these things to some degree, organized crime and corruption have increased in Mexico since his election. And despite that, he remains quite popular with a roughly 60 percent approval rating with two years left in his one six-year term. Today we're sitting down again with Florida Gulf Coast University political scientist Dr. Rick Coughlin, who specializes in Mexican politics to get an update on the situation south of the border. I spoke with him last week. Let's hear that now. Dr. Coughlin, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for starters, let's start with some context about where Mexico is politically today. So it's President Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO as people refer to him. He's about two-thirds of the way through his one and only six-year term, right? That's right. Um, talk about just how he came to power, you know, as quickly as possible, because he kind of came in as an outsider, uh, had a party that was relatively new compared to what had been in power in Mexico. Just talk about how he came to power politically and like what his promises were four years ago. Okay, so AMLO, AMLO's party is called Morena. Uh, Morena uh, was formed in 2015, so in the pretty recent past, uh, uh, it was formed as the other major political parties uh, formed the coalition around the, the former president, Enrique Nieto uh, Peña, in order to enable Peña to sort of carry out his neoliberal agenda for Mexico. And so uh, Obrador emerged, or AMLO emerged, as, uh, um, as, as an oppositional figure. And, uh, and he, he swept the power in the 2018 election. It was uh, an election contested by uh, three of the major parties in Mexico where AMLO carried 53% of the vote. And then since then, he's been a popular president in Mexico. His approval rating now is over uh, 60%. His disapproval rating is 36%. I can think of an American president uh, that would very much like to have those types of approval numbers. What were the kinds of things like his main key points that he said he was going to try to implement? Well, he was going to be a pro-poor uh, leader of, of Mexico, uh, lift up the poor. Um, he wanted to address the, um, the whole crisis of security in Mexico by means of uh, demilitarizing Mexico, right? So since 2006, AMLO's predecessors had called upon the army to maintain uh, public security and uh, against uh, uh, organized crime and against narco-trafficking. And these policies had not been successful in pacifying the, the country. And so AMLO was uh, uh, proposing to send the military back to his barracks. Uh, he was proposing instead that uh, he would provide uh, subsidies in the form of cash payments to so-called ninis, uh, people who were neither employed nor in school, and uh, and people who were most likely to be recruited by organized crime. And so these people would be given 
an option to uh, organized crime and the approach to fighting organized crime would be uh, demilitarized. And so this was the new leaf uh, that uh, AMLO was uh, proposing as he entered office in 2018. Uh, hugs, not bullets was yes. his, uh, <clears throat> sort of his catchphrase for, for that approach. And yeah. um, how closely has he stuck to the plan and how has it turned out? Okay, that changed very quickly. Uh, so once he assumed office, uh, AMLO instead proposed the, the creation of a National Guard, and the National Guard would be largely under the command of the military, and it would be staffed by, uh, by soldiers from, from the Navy and from, from the Army. Um, and, uh, and now in Mexico, uh, AMLO is proposing to um, constitutionalize uh, the authority of the military to command the National Guard. And so what this represents is the militarization of, uh, of public security in Mexico. Um, has that had any, um, you know, noticeable impact on narco-trafficking and that whole system? No. <laughs> no, it's not. And uh, so we can talk. There's an interesting story that we could tell about uh, fentanyl, which is a drug that is, you know, currently of concern in, in the United States and the fentanyl deaths that have gone up in the United States. And, uh, but the, the interesting thing about the, the transshipment of fentanyl from Mexico to the United States is it kind of turns upon you know, policies that are being enacted by the United States. Meaning what? Well, first of all, um, there were restrictions on painkillers, right? There's opioid epidemics, so we're going to restrict uh, prescriptions of painkillers. And so people who need to get access to these painkillers are going to do so, you know, by means of turning to illegal markets. So this is creating the demand for fentanyl um, uh, exports uh, from, from Mexico to the United States. Uh, back to the militarization thing. Um, is that something that's welcomed by the public or is that something that people are concerned about or are scholars concerned about that? Is that a, a new trend for Mexico overall? Well, the the public has a higher approval of the military than they do of the police or the, the justice system. And so, you know, militarization tends to be popular with the public. And then AMLO himself is, is popular. He has a high approval rating. And, uh, and then he attempts to assure the public that his government is different and that the military will behave and act differently under his government than it did under preceding governments where the military was involved with you know, significant uh, human rights abuses. Have the human rights abuses gone down under AMLO? Because I know that was a huge concern. No. By the military. No, I, I don't think so. Oh, and so the public doesn't seem to notice that, or are they? Uh, but still, on the whole, the military is more trustworthy. So than even the though there are still human rights abuses, it's not as bad as it could be. Um, yeah, I mean, people huh. would say, well, the alternative is worse. Uh, the alternative are the local and state police forces that are, you know, completely in the bag for organized crime. I read a statistic as I was reading up on this show that says something like. Only about 7% of crimes are investigated and less than 3% are prosecuted. So basically 99, 95 out of 100 crimes just go by? 
Well, yeah. So the the, the whole Mexican criminal justice system is uh, is dramatically underfunded. They they don't have enough police. They don't have enough uh, detectives or investigators. They don't have enough judges. They don't have enough you know, prison guards to uh, maintain their prisons. Um, you know, instead of investing in their criminal justice system, Mexico has been investing in expanding the military. And so, in a way, that might be why people are welcoming the military because it is so. There's so much impunity with crime. Uh, yes, that's right. That's right. So that the you know the criminal justice system is seen as, as as being essentially useless, and you know the military has a reputation for at least some level of operational effectiveness. Hmm. How embedded, or sort of, how much does the narco trafficking world, the cartels, how pervasive are they through? the criminal justice system and the political system? Are they completely embedded in that in terms of the controls that they have through bribery and et cetera? Well, I mean, one sort of case in point that we could talk about is, uh, is the story of uh, Salvador Cienfuegos, who was the, the military leader under the preceding government of Peña Nieto. And uh, so he retired from his position. He was uh, traveling in the United States in 2000. 19 in San Diego when he was arrested by the FBI and indicted, right? The FBI unsealed an indictment against uh, Cienfuegos for, for narco-trafficking, right? And so you have the head of the Mexican military, you know, charged with collaborating with uh, the Sinaloa cartel, the leading narco-trafficking organization uh, in Mexico. And then under um, intense pressure from the uh, Lopez Obrador government, the Department of Justice decided to drop the charges against Cienfuegos, and Cienfuegos was returned to uh, Mexico, uh, after which the Mexican government um, has so far uh, failed to bring any charges against him, uh, which speaks, of course, to the, the power and the impunity of the military and Mexican politics. And when was the last time you went to Mexico? We went this summer. When you go there just as an individual, do you feel safe? I mean, is it just, uh, it seems from a distance that it might not be safe almost everywhere, but is that more of a pockets thing or how does that work out for a, a person like yourself? I think it's more of a pockets thing. So that there are states, if you look at the State Department advisory, right, there are states where, you know, you're told, do not go to the state. Do not go, for example, to uh, Tamaulipas, right? Tamaulipas is right across the, the border from Texas. It's a border state. And not surprisingly, right, there's a lot of narco-trafficking activity and a lot of, you know, violent conflict between narco-trafficking groups to control the transshipment routes from Tamaulipas into uh, the United States. So, And so that's that's a violent state, right? That's a state that nobody should go to. Michoacan is is another state uh, racked with violence, um, and uh, um, so there there are probably you know five or six states that are just certainly no go zones, and then there are regions within uh, various states that that are no go zones hmm. as well. I want to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. Dr. Rick Coughlin is a political science professor at FGCU who specializes in Mexico's political system and history. We have him on the show every year or so to get a snapshot of what's happening in Mexico's political system and society. If you'd like to engage with us about this conversation or any of our shows, just find us on WGCU social media. We're on Facebook and we're on Twitter. So one of the reasons people hear about 
Mexico in the news lately is the U.S. southern border has been, I think it's safe to say, flooded with asylum seekers from Central America and South America, Venezuela. Uh, I think the number is going to be more than two million this year that have been arrested at the border. For starters, what is driving that? It, you know, I said asylum seekers. Is it just the horrible conditions in Central and South America that are pushing people to the north? Yes. Right. I mean, you have the implosion of, of Central America. In, in Central America, you have, first of all, uh, the civil wars of, of the 1980s, the, the first implosion of Central America. And then uh, Central America went through a long period of uh, economic globalization, which caused more uh, economic uh, dislocation and chaos, uh, uh, prompting a, a second implosion of Central America that, that we're currently experiencing. And then, of course, you have a lot of uh, migration uh, from Venezuela. More than 6 million people have uh, emigrated uh, from Venezuela since the beginning of the Maduro government in Venezuela. How strongly is Mexico's southern border guarded? In other words, how easy it is for people from Venezuela to get into Mexico? We talk about the U.S. southern border. How strong is this Mexico's southern border? Well, um, one of the um, the things that uh, the Trump administration did, this was in 2019, is that they they threatened to slap tariffs on Mexico unless Mexico took a more active role in interdicting Central American migration uh, through Mexico. And so Mexico's president, Lopez Obrador, obliged, and uh, a significant part of, of the National Guard uh, National Guard's resources were uh, were focused on uh, immigrant uh, interdiction, and the in- immigrant interdiction uh, it uh, it begins at the border. Um, most migrants have to pass through the border town of Tapachula in Chiapas, and they have to uh, get a um, a permit in order to travel through the rest of Mexico. Saying that they're heading north to seek asylum. Right, right, gotcha. but it takes them. Uh, several months in order to acquire that permit, um, and so it's very difficult for these migrants to uh, to survive in Tapachula without the permit, uh, and so that discourages them, sending many of them back across the border. And then there are a series of checkpoints in order to uh, apprehend people who are traveling in uh, an undocumented, unauthorized fashion. Uh, and then, in addition to that, you have you know, various organized crime groups, you know, preying on these uh, migrants, uh, kidnapping them, selling them into human trafficking or extorting them. Remind listeners what uh, the Remain in Mexico policy is, or I guess maybe now was. Right, right. So Remain in Mexico is implemented by uh, the Trump administration for migrants that are um, arriving at the U.S.-Mexican border to to submit a petition for asylum status, and so they're refugees, as, as opposed to migrants attempting to you know, sneak into the United States and, uh, and, and work in the, in the informal economy. Okay, so Trump instituted uh, a series of policies to, to dismantle much of the, the refugee policy apparatus within the federal government. Right? So the United States is a signatory uh, to the Refugee Convention, 
And so, you know, the refugees have a legal right to petition for asylum, and uh, and they have the right to enter and reside in the United States and be protected from the harm that have caused them to migrate until their petition uh, for asylum status can be adjudicated uh, by an immigration judge. And so remain in Mexico was a policy essentially of metering, right? And so um, refugees or migrants would show up and they could, uh, the, uh, the, the Border and Customs Patrol would only receive a certain number of them on a given day. Uh, and so thousands would show up at the ports of entry, but only a few dozen would receive appointments to be processed on any given day. And so this process of, of metering forced most of the refugees to remain in Mexico. Where did they remain? That must have been a lot of people. How did the Mexican government and the Mexican people handle those people that needed to stay just south of the border? Well, they remain in northern Mexico cities, like, for example, Reynosa and Tamaulipas, which is a very dangerous place, right? And so they, they're in these uh, refugee camps. There are various uh, non-governmental organizations that, that are looking after them. Uh, there have been attempts by the Mexican government to hand out work permits in order to encourage some of the refugees to work in the maquiladores along the, the Mexican-U.S. Uh, border. Um, but for the most part, these migrants uh, are, are are living in abject poverty. Uh, they're in refugee camps, and they're subject to more or less constant attack from organized crime groups that uh, want to kidnap them, extort them, uh, rape them, or use them for human trafficking. So has Remain in Mexico officially ended? I did see some headlines says that they are going to do it as quickly as possible, but I wasn't sure if I can find one that said it had happened. Yeah, as of August. Okay, it has right. as of, the policy as of last has month. Ended. So what does that mean now to those people who were forced to remain in Mexico? Are they able to then, without a certain cap, come in and apply as refugees? Right, right. So we are and, now accepting more than a limited number. Right. And then the question becomes, what about the people that were turned away? Right. Do they get to now exercise the rights that had been denied to them at an earlier point in time during the Trump administration? But the other point about this, I think, is that it kind of throws the ball back in Mexico's court. Right. And so um, probably there's more pressure on the Mexican government to step up its interdiction efforts in order to compensate for the fact that we've ended the stay in Mexico policy. Explain why. Well, because sure Mexico is um, basically the Mexican National Guard has become uh, an extension of Customs and Border Patrol in the United States. Ah. Right. And so, um, you know, they are um, they are interdicting uh, Central American migrants, not for the sake of, well, for the sake of, you know, making sure that Mexico doesn't get hit with with uh, economic sanctions from the United States, but not for any other reason besides that, right? So, so Mexico um, really is a kind of, uh, in terms of border security, it, what it represents is the, the perimeter, the territorial uh, perimeter of the United States. Um, do people in Mexico follow American politics? And what I'm getting at is like, would the headline, you know, Florida governor sends, you know, asylum seekers from Texas to Martha's Vineyard, and that makes all the news here. Do Mexican people, as a general rule, follow along with that kind of stuff? And what would they think about stories like that if they do? Um, well, back in uh, 2018, I, I had a chance to you know, speak at a, 
at, at a conference that was attended by um, by mostly people who were who were street vendors. Um, this was a kind of uh, political organization of, of street vendors in the city of Puebla, Mexico. And so this was about halfway through the, the Trump administration. And, and they were aware of and indignant about the treatment of migrants in the United States. And so I think in general, yes, there's a sensitivity to that. So as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, AMLO is two-thirds of the way through a six-year term. He cannot run again. Mm -hmm. um, are the cards starting to fall into place in terms of a possible successor? Will his party, do you think, be able to remain in power since it kind of, as I understand it, it kind of is him. The, the Morena party is kind of AMLO. So what do you see going forward? Uh, well, um in, in Mexico, there's this thing called the dedazo that means the finger. You point the finger. Uh, the leader points the finger Has at he his pointed successor. the finger? <laughs> right. And uh, he hasn't pointed the finger yet, but we think that the finger might be pointed at uh, Claudia Scheinbaum, who is the, the current mayor of, of Mexico City. And Mexico City has been historically uh, an electoral stronghold of Morena. AMLO himself was the mayor of Mexico City from 2000 to 2006, so that was an important part of his own political trajectory. What do you see as being his biggest challenges between now and the end of his term? Um, I think that, uh, you know, Lopez Obrador is just on a, on a glide path. That, his approval uh, rating's high. His approval rating is no high. No matter how bad things are, right. he seems the to be. The security situation in Mexico is bad. It hasn't gotten better. Uh, economic growth uh, remains low. Um, and so, you know, he, he's delivered on neither, you know, sort of reviving the, the Mexican economy, right? He had a whole series of uh, mega projects that he was proposing that would revive the Mexican economy and generate economic growth. This is one of his criticisms of the predecessor governments that these predecessor governments had only managed to uh, generate very anemic levels of economic growth. And AMLO is going to change that, and he was going to uh, dramatically improve the security situation. Well, you know, he's delivered on neither one of those, right? But he still remains popular. And so I think he's just kind of on a glide path towards, uh, you know, completing his uh, his administration. It looks like he's going to uh, transfer significant power to the military. And this is a long-term trend, I think, and going back at least 20 years in Mexican politics is the gradual uh, accretion of power uh, in the institution of the military. And so Mexico is, is becoming, as a result, a more militarized society. Hmm. And the people, I guess, are okay with that because his approval ratings are high. Yes, his approval ratings are, in fact, high. And so I think, you know, AMLO manages to, uh, in terms of his political practices, for example, he does these mañaneras, uh, which are his morning talks, these long he spends a lot of time talking press to the conferences people. that he does yeah. every morning. And he just gets up and he lectures the, um, the press, uh, journalists, and, uh, and he has a, a kind of, you know, paranoid discourse about, you know, all of the enemies that are out to undermine his government. Uh, but, uh, you know, he has succeeded in mobilizing um, pretty significant uh, majoritarian support for his government in spite of his apparent lack of accomplishments. How do you account for that as a political scientist who studies Mexico? That doesn't seem to add up, but there it is. Right. Um, 
But I think the way one performs one's political office matters uh, just as much as the substantive achievements one manages to secure, you know, legislatively, politically, in terms of He's charismatic and, and talks to the people. Right. Hmm. Who are his biggest challengers? Are there are there other forces that you think could end up taking, you know, you know, his successor doesn't win and they move back to one of the pre-existing political parties? Or do you not see that even happening? Well, the major political parties are the the pre, right? That's the party that essentially governed for Mexico. Like, for, like, for like 70 years. Right, from 1928 to, to 2000. And the pre is a shadow of its uh, previous self. It endured massive losses uh, in, in the 2018 elections. And then uh, the other party of the left from which AMLO bolted back in 2015 um, is called the Partido Revolucionario Democrática, um, I think. And uh, But that party also is, uh, is a shadow of its former self with many of its members, you know, leaving the, the PRD for, for Morena. So the only, you know, viable party that's left standing is the PAN, um, the, the, the sort of the traditional uh, Catholic party, the Partido de Acción Nacional. And so, you know, the PAN really is the only uh, formidable opponent to López Obrador at this point. Last question. Do you think there's any chance that he could uh, have the Constitution changed so he sticks around, or is that even something you'd see happening with him and his disposition? Um, I think that's a, there's a deep norm in, in Mexican politics about uh, the, the idea of, of presidents serving a one-year term. So, And this goes back to the, the figure of Porfirio Diaz, um, the dictator of Mexico, um, uh, from the middle of the 1870s up until uh, 1910, the beginning of the Mexican Revolution, so Diaz uh, governed for 35 years and uh, and you know secured his reelection um, on six different occasions using a thoroughly corrupt electoral system. And so you know this basic norm of the one-term president emerged as you know part of you know the the, the rationale for why the Mexican Revolution was fought early in the 20th century. And I, I think that norm is still fairly strong in Mexico. All right. Well, we're out of time, but we'll have you back in about a year. And then in two <laughs> years, we'll see who wins this election. Great. Um, thanks to our guest, Dr. Rick Coughlin, is Associate Professor of Political Science at Florida Gulf Coast University. Rick, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Mike. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.